Russia in talks for closer military cooperation over Syria airstrikes. Our contact with the Russians is absolutely limited to safety of flight and safety of our people on the ground. Clinton's officially going head-to-head with Trump for the White House and the army has warned it could fall short of government recruitment targets. Divisions have appeared in the United States this week between the State Department and the Pentagon. And the divisions are over, of all things, extra collaboration with Russia. Secretary of State John Kerry wants Washington and Moscow to share intelligence information about airstrikes in Syria. He's been holding talks with his counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. Both of us uh, committed to a series of uh, quiet meetings that will take place, not between he and me, but technical-level teams, to work through details in order to make certain that the doubts expressed by Secretary Carter, by Chairman Dunford, or the doubts expressed by President Putin or the Russians are going to be addressed ahead of time. Well, the idea is to work more closely to coordinate airstrikes in Syria, perhaps with a grounding of President Assad's aircraft. But as John Kerry referred to their Defence Secretary Ash Carter and Joint Chiefs of Staff Joseph Dunford are sceptical. The reason for caution, according to Ash Carter, is that Russia has done little to help bring an end to the Syrian civil war so far. They obviously have been backing the regime, which has had the effect of prolonging the civil war, whereas we had hoped that they would promote a political solution uh, and transition uh, to put an end to the civil war, which is the beginning of all this violence in in Syria, uh, and then combat extremists rather than moderate opposition, which has to be part of that transition. So they're a long way from doing that. So what could this greater cooperation mean? Well, joining us to look at this is Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Southern Utah University and Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Michael, firstly to you, are you surprised John Kerry is pushing for this and Ash Carter is pushing against it? Well, I'm a little surprised there's a difference of opinion, but uh, it's uh, it's not unusual. Now, uh, discussions uh, about the relative roles of the United States and Russia concerning Syria have been going on for quite a while. Um, I think one of the major concerns on the part of uh, Secretary of State Kerry and Foreign Minister uh, Lavrov uh, is uh, an attempt to prevent uh, some kind of a... Uh, uh, a collision of uh, Russian and American aircraft uh, over Syria, uh, resulting in uh, an unfortunate incident, as it uh, as it might be called, um, and uh, especially at this very sensitive time, particularly after yesterday, that uh, that could be, of course, disastrous. Now, as to whether this will morph into something of broader. Uh, a sharing of intelligence, uh, cooperative uh, airstrikes, um, that might be uh, something that uh, is, is still out there, um, uh, maybe with some people who see uh, see that as a hopeful situation, but I don't know if it's a practical situation at this mm, point. Not practical, he says. Christopher Lee, who do you side with, John Kerry or Ash Carter? If you look at what the, um, what the State Department has been saying, and if you look at what the 
current uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs says in Moscow under Lavrov, you can see the sort of idea that we're talking about two, two countries taking part in a civil war where all the rules are therefore changed. I mean, America understands that because, in fundamentally, that's what Vietnam War was about. It was a civil war which the Americans got involved in, and they've, they've never forgotten that. What we are seeing now are the two levels you would expect. You have, for example, uh, Ash Carter and Sergei Shogu, uh, who is the, the, the Russian defence minister. There's the element that, uh, uh, that we're talking about j- j- just then with Mike, and that is we don't want the miscalculation that could result from a, a collision mm. of aircraft. But there is something else. Is the bombing against the right people? Have we actually got to the state where bombing is no longer leading us to some answer? <clears throat> and the most important part, is it likely that through on the military side of it, certainly through the diplomatic side, it, uh, America could lose the influence, the little influence she has in the region, but, but, the, 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 but Russia would, would gain that influence? So it's a much bigger story than just about the poor devils on the ground who are getting bombed every single day of the week. Michael Stathis, realistic, how easy, realistically, how easy is it for John Kerry to get Russia to agree on who and what to target on the ground, and how trustworthy can this relationship be? Well, I, I think we saw part of this uh, yesterday concerning the, uh, if, I, I, if I can put it lightly, the misstatement of candidate Trump. Um, uh, John Kerry and um, uh, Sergey Lavrov uh, uh, immediately community, uh, communicated with uh, with each other. Of course, this follows up on uh, the accusations in the press mm-hmm. and by certain uh, intelligence analysts that uh, Russia, uh, as a sovereign state, uh, is responsible for hacking into the uh, Democratic National uh, uh, headquarters. Yeah, we'll Kerry and Lavrov. Well, Kerry and Lavrov have a good working relationship, and and I am led to believe that uh, uh, they know each other well, and I think they trust each other. Um, uh, The situation over the last couple of uh, days, I think, tested that uh, a little bit. But in terms of Syria, um, uh, I I think that there are sincere hopes on both the part of Lavrov and Kerry that um, uh, they can um, uh, set up a sensible situation to prevent an emergency situation, number one, but also something that might lead to, as Christopher uh, noted, something more than just bombing those poor devils on the ground or uh, the possibility of an air collision uh, over Syria. Um, Some kind of an agreement on, I mean a real agreement on what to do about the situation in Damascus. Mike, what the to other do th- about the Assad government? I tell you something, there's another side of this. Look up the name Nikolai Ponimaryov. And Ponimaryov is the deputy commander operations, actually, for the Syrian operation uh, uh, of the Russians. If Nikolai Ponimaryov gets out of bed the wrong side, he can countermand, and has done consistently since Christmas, since he took over, countermand the commander-in-chief's operational detail, and that is something which the whole system... Sobering thought. ...has no control over. Mm, Michael Stathis, you, you touched on this, this issue. Uh, Moscow's been accused of hacking emails from the Democratic National Committee for Donald Trump's benefit. Both Russia and Mr Trump deny the allegation. Um, these claims and alleged links between Trump and Russia, how significant do you think they are? 
this is this is getting into old Cold War uh, conspiracy theory. I thought that we'd left that behind an awful long time ago. But you know, um, I'm going to be diplomatic here. I, I, I'm going hmm. to uh, say what Trump said yesterday was a misstatement uh, because it's absolutely unthinkable that a candidate uh, for the, the office of President of the United States would invite a foreign power uh, to interfere in an American uh, election. Uh, mm. But uh, this seems to be what, uh, uh, you know, what Trump was uh, leading to. Now, uh, this is just another example. Uh, and it's very sad. It's another example of why Trump is really totally out of his depth uh, about foreign affairs. Well, actually, comments were made at the, con uh, the convention last night. He's totally out of his depth about just about anything. But when you consider misstatements concerning NATO, uh, NATO allies, the Crimea, misstatements concerning uh, Putin, the list goes on and on and on. This is a man who is not prepared um, uh, to sit in the Oval Office and to seriously consider um, uh, questions of, uh, of uh, international importance. What we're, what we're hearing here um, is a wise and wily old academic, actually you're not that old, um, <laughs> preparing, preparing to get a visa to go into Canada should a certain person get into the White House. I can hear it all over it. But the problem is we... <laughs> Mike, we are in. We are into the grand. We are into the grand. You'll still theater. do sit rep, though, won't you, Michael? No matter what. Well, at thirty-five dollars. My granddaughter. My granddaughter has. My granddaughter already asked my wife yeah. if we are moving to Canada if Trump is elected, and uh, Shelley, of course, made the comment. Uh, they may not want us. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's the equivalent of Brexit. But but listen, there is a there is a there is a, a sound side here, and it's apart from the fact you get into this great sort of discussion. Why is it at this particular time in America's history they've thrown up a Trump, for example, that Trump has appeared? What we are <laughs> hearing for the first time in sometimes very rough. Uh, electioneering in, in, in this sort of thing, presidential election, electioneering, we are hearing something which caters to the anger of a nation, that nation being the United States. And that is something which I think is probably far more serious mm. than whether Putin's going to uh, get his, bex, uh, his best man out to Let, sort of hack into her. Let's just move emails. on to the, the Democratic Convention this week uh, and Hillary Clinton's... <laughs> I thought we had. <laughs> well, we'll carry on, shall we? <laughs> How likely is Hillary Clinton, now she has been nominated the presidential candidate, to have better relations with Russia than Trump? Well, uh, as, as I think everyone listening, uh, and certainly I think most of the people on the program uh, know, that uh, the history of uh, the re relationship between um, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, and uh, President Putin uh, has been a bumpy one. Uh, uh, Hillary out of office, uh, not serving as Secretary of State, uh, um, uh, but as a private citizen, uh, questioned the validity of elections in Russia in 2011. Uh, she has made disparaging comments about the uh, ultimate goal of Putin's uh, foreign policy, suggesting that he's trying to reestablish um, uh, the old uh, uh, Soviet Union. Uh, the, the, the fact is, Putin may not like these statements, but uh, 
uh, they're not empty of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, his uh, feathers have been ruffled, but, uh, well, that's, that's part of, uh, of international uh, affairs. Now, can uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, as President of the United States, work uh, with Putin uh, and uh, the Russian Federation? Um, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, uh, she was a fundamental player uh, in the New START program. Um, and, um, uh, of course, being president, uh, uh, you know, is a much different situation when you're looking at uh, political outcomes than being a private citizen. Uh, the whole outlook uh, is, is, is going to change. Putin is not going mm. to be happy. Uh, mm. But is he going to go so far as to interfere in an American election? Uh, you know, uh, it's a fantastic uh, uh, idea. It's a good film but, script, uh, isn't it? Let's does... face it. It's a very bad film. Yeah, there does seem to be. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This hacking situation is serious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you one thing that I do know, and that's from the two people I've spoken to uh, from Hillary Clinton's office. They say two things. One is that she would have the Russians back full time in Brussels, or the full Mm -hmm. full staffed office. In, in part of that yes. partnership for peace. The second thing she, she, she understands more perfectly than most, Russians don't deal with people humorously. In fact, they like people to have a deadpan attitude to cooperation and public relations. What, what do you think then, Christopher, her, her foreign policy in general, her approach would be? I think the first thing is that it is very, very much America in the line that Obama has taken America over the past eight, eight years. Don't get involved unless you've had to. And so because you're still trying to get out of what you're already into. And the other thing you've got to consider is not so much what America's policy might be, is what countries feel about America and what do they want from America. And that is a very difficult list to figure at the moment. Briefly, Michael Sathis, after four years as Secretary of State under Barack Obama, was there any diplomatic breakthrough that has given her a legacy, do you think? Well, I, I, like I said, the uh, the New Start uh, uh, agreement uh, uh, concerning Russia was uh, was was very positive, uh, but that, of course, was under a different uh, 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 regime. I guess we could say in uh, in Russia, um, and uh, there, the 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 big diplomatic uh, breakthrough, uh, I think, uh, was restoring uh, positive relations with a number of American allies, particularly those, those allies uh, in, in NATO. Uh, on this program, of course, I've been a major spokesman and defender of the so-called uh, special uh, relationship between Britain uh, and the United States, Britain as a member of NATO. And uh, Secretary Clinton, of course, uh, uh, very strongly, uh, you know, uh, supporting that. And I think that that, uh, that certainly will, uh, you know, will be part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, turning to uh, Canada Trump, uh, his whole attitude about uh, about foreign alignments, uh, particularly in the form of NATO, um, is at this point, at the very least, uh, uh, questionable. Uh, I know right. he uh, he has positive positive feelings about Scotland because of the golf course, <laughs> but uh, does that extend, uh, you know, to uh, you know to to broader concerns? I'm not sure. Okay, Professor Michael Stathis, the golf will be another day from Southern Utah University. Thank you. Remember, you can listen to this program as a podcast. Just search for BFBS SITREP. SITREP with Still to come, is the army falling short on recruitment? BFBS SITREP. 
The Normandy killing of a priest this week was another high-profile attack claimed by IS or sympathisers to their cause. But some of France's largest and most respected news outlets are refusing to publish the names and photos of terrorists in a campaign against what it calls the glorification of the attacks. An editorial in Le Monde said debates would continue over its coverage as the fight against online radicalisation continues. But where do you draw the line on coverage of these atrocities? Well, joining myself and Christopher to discuss media coverage of terror attacks is writer and broadcaster Robin Lustig. Good to speak to you today, Robin. Um, first of all, do we start with the word terror, do we, or terrorism itself? Is that used too often, do you think? It's a very problematic word, isn't it? Because for decades now, journalists have struggled to decide who is a terrorist and who is not. When somebody commits a heinous act of mass murder, it's easy to call them terrorists. And some of them are terrorists in the classical definition. They are committing those acts because they mm. wish to terrorise the rest of us. Some of them, however, are disturbed individuals with serious mental health issues. They may be depressed, they may be angry, they may hate themselves, they may have all kinds of issues which lead them to do what they do. And the problem that those of us who are journalists have is we have no way of knowing who is doing what they do because they wish to terrorise us and who is doing what they do because they have mental health problems. Sometimes they leave a video or they leave a message behind which might give an inkling into their motivations. But I do think it's extraordinarily difficult to know for sure who is doing what and why. So what do you think of the Le Mans uh, stance on this then? I have some problems with it, I'll be honest. As a journalist, my starting point is that people are entitled to know who is doing what in their community. If somebody commits an act of mass murder, we are entitled to know who that person is, their name, where they come from, uh, what they look like. Those are basic pieces of information. I entirely understand why Le Monde and others have real problems with the idea that perhaps they are encouraging others to do something similar by giving them publicity, what they call glorifying these terrible acts. I'm not sure that any of these bombers, these suicide bombers, these gunmen, are doing what they do because they want to see their photograph on the front page of a newspaper. I think their motives go far deeper than that. Christopher, uh, Margaret Thatcher tried to shut down publicity for the IRA 35 years ago. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher looked and said, we must not give these people the oxygen of publicity. That was the phrase that was used. And she had a qu quite a stretch of uh, ideas that how you would control the, the media, starting with the BBC, because it was the most obvious thing that the majority of people listened to, and, and she, or her Bernie Ingham, her, her spokesman once said, nobody reads further down than four mm. paragraphs in any story. But it wasn't a new thing, that if you go back to the 1950s, for example, colonial history in, in the United Kingdom, uh, and to Kenya, and how at one point the newspapers they were trying to be controlled in East Africa uh, because of uh, Jomo Kenyatta uh, and, and also the Kikuyu tribe, the war against Kikuyu tribes, etc. That was exactly the same thing. Where you come to a difficulty 
with the whole thing. I mean, for example, we talk about Le Monde might might sort of uh, not publish photographs, but what happens if Figaro Figaro is not going to? It's, it's also social media, isn't well, it? Uh, that's right. That's right. And, and I mean, Le Figaro will say we're not going to do that. We'll, we'll, we'll test it. But when when you get to you, you then get to the great dilemma in the argument, which Robin is really insisting upon, I think here, uh, it's a puzzle. And terrorism, for example, if you take the uh, the European terrorist brigades or, or terrorism, uh, um, what, 30, 40 years ago, you had the Red Brigade and Bader-Meinhof, mm. etc. You knew what they were after or did you? <laughs> you didn't actually know. It, it didn't mean very much. Somebody could blow up a shopping centre, let's say, or they wouldn't. They show up a governing building, let's say, in, in, in Munich. And up the road, you just carry on shopping. Mm. When you get because it was an act against authority. When terrorism uh, becomes total ideology, that is the one where people say we cannot understand why we should be settling for a government authority which says do not show the pictures, after what, which you get the next stages, do not report it. Mm. What was so odd about the uh, Margaret Thatcher ban on broadcasting the voices of IRA spokespeople? And it was only their voices. It wasn't their words that uh, the BBC and others were banned from reporting. So what she did, in fact, was was put in place a work creation scheme for Irish actors, because, uh, as Christopher and other <laughs> listeners will remember, uh, what the BBC and other broadcasters did was they simply hired actors to voice what IRA yeah. people were saying. So the message still got out. It was just the voices that did I- It simply didn't work. I also remember, Robin, back in the day, I mean, the reporting of, of a, a terrorist threat was also very strictly controlled by the media, wasn't it, as well? But that, Yeah, I, I mean, I think journalists try to be responsible uh, just, just to go laterally for one second. When, for example, uh, somebody is kidnapped, quite often the police will ask for a media blackout in order to help them to negotiate the mm. release of the kidnapped victim. The media normally go along with that because somebody's life is at stake. After an act of terrorism, has been committed. I don't think the same consideration. What about what about IS videos talking about them? Should that happen? Because the media will get blamed if they do, if they don't. Uh, I, I'm actually with those broadcasters and others who took a decision after the first IS videos were released not to broadcast anymore because it was quite clear that some awful acts were being committed entirely for their propaganda value. And if you didn't go along with that, if you didn't broadcast the video, then there, there was no more case for the appalling beheadings and executions that were taking place. So I think that was a good thing to do, and I think it paid dividends. Robin Lustig, good to speak to you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. There have been claims the army is likely to miss its reservist targets by up to two years. A report signed off by retired Lieutenant General Robin Brims also believes problems with the recruitment programme could mean army reserve numbers fall away once targets are achieved. That's despite adverts like this. Don't join the army. Don't. Don't what? Don't stand on my own two feet. Don't do something important. Something that makes a difference. Don't realise I can do more than I thought. More than you thought. Don't become a, a better me. Well, our reporter in Westminster, James Hurst, has been discussing these findings with Robin Brims. Uh, James, first of all, what did the report outline? It is actually a a fairly positive report. Certainly uh, the RAF have actually completed the the growth of their reserves early for Future Reserve 20. The Navy pretty much on track. Now, the Army, I mean, at one point, Army reserve numbers were falling when they were supposed to be increasing. 
that has been turned round, but it's still not going well enough. Some of their real concerns are about the recruitment partnership with the private firm Capita, which they say is simply not delivering well enough. They have now called for that contract to be urgently reviewed. They, this panel sound like they've come to an end of a line on this issue. Uh, because although, as I say, recruitment's picked up, uh, Lieutenant General Robin Brims, who chairs this external scrutiny team, told me there is still a mountain to climb and time isn't really on their side. On current forecasting, we think it will be about two years late in delivering the full 30,000 train strength. So in terms of numbers of people, how far behind schedule is it? Well, it's not behind, it's not behind schedule on the numbers of people because they're meeting their targets for all three services, but the target for the army, which has got much the biggest hurdle to climb, get steeper year on year. The numbers, the numbers are quite small. Um, it's actually, it's, if, if, it, if it's going to be, we say, about 3,000 short at 2018 and getting there by 2020, 3,000 short, they'll have achieved 27,000. And actually, the difference in terms of numbers and usage and operationally, it's not really material. It's hard to hear 3,000 missing and, and, and think it's operationally not material, given that this is central to smaller, leaner overall force, an integrated force. It's an integrated part of the whole force, but you wouldn't see the whole force being deployed the whole time, all the time, and therefore you begin to understand why it's actually not going to be particularly material. It's going to be material, of course it's going to be material, but it's not going to be the end of the world if you're going to be short of 3,000 for about two years. How much of a part in the scheduling problems for the, for the army is this private contract, this private recruiting partnership that you say it needs to be urgently reviewed? We have, if you read our previous three reports, we have passed comment that the um, contract, and it is a partnership contract between the Army and Capita, has not been working as well as anybody originally hoped. Uh, we now conclude in this report that it must be seriously addressed, looked at, because we see commanding officers and units in the Army putting in a huge amount of work to make the contract work. And we think that they're covering up inadequacies of the contract and they're putting in a lot of time, energy and cost, which we think should be reviewed to make it a more equitable contract. Uh, James, how worried should the MOD be about this potential shortfall then? Uh, well, uh, Lieutenant General Brims is confident it can be delivered. The message is in this report is you know, the numbers are going in the right direction, but it's getting people trained and integrated, a culture change that they say if it doesn't happen, that could thwart the benefits. The Defence Secretary is you know, pretty bullish. He's happy with the way the numbers are going. Uh, there is another government review. Former Defence Minister Mark Francois is looking at the reserves again, but don't think there's going to be some kind of U-turn. I think this is just about finessing, and the government are, are still committed to this. All right, James Hurst and Westminster. So thank you. Christopher, any thoughts on this? Only when you've got uh, fuller employment, the chances of getting um, reserves used to be okay. 
but now with full employment it is not okay, just as the same way it's not for general employment. It's, it's one of the factors you have to put in. The other thing is, I don't think they should worry too much about it. Look at over this at 10 years and look at the functions of the services, especially the army. Uh, um, and then you, you can actually f- make the formations you wish to make form uh, for the operations you're in. And by mm-hmm. the way, just a point about the RAF, they've nearly done their numbers. Of course they have. They only mm-hmm. want about six. Um, job losses this week. The Russian commander of the Baltic fleet and a few of his colleagues have been sacked. Well, this is my old chum, Viktor Kravchuk. <laughs> That's um, why he got and, sacked then. And, and, and Sergei <laughs> Papov, uh, who is his chief of staff, his admiral, or his vice admiral, actually. What happened? And they've all been nicked for corruption in the Baltic fleet. Now, Baltic fleet is very Russian important. Russian corruption. Oh, yes, the best. Um, they've been nicked in the Baltic fleet. And this, just put it in context, this is the place where we're sending ships airplanes, brigades, etc., mm. because of this uh, perceived Russian threat towards the and Baltic states. And they're alleged states. to have been doing what? Oh, well, uh, they've, been, they've been filtering the oil that's supposed to drive these ships... Allegedly. Uh, ...off into a... Off, no, 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 no. It's, it's coming out of there, but there's more coming out of the Baltic fleet than coming out of Saudi Arabia, uh, I tell you. Right, uh, and- but also, uh, the ships aren't working. And so they've, they've, they've got rid of 50 senior officers. And this mm-hmm. is one, there are only four major fleets in, 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 in the Russian services. And this is one of them, completely US at the moment. Underwater, the biggest underwater rescue mission for more than 30 years. This is to bring up HMS Invincible. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> wonder. More. I, 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 I tell you, what, I, I wonder. It, we've, we've had the Mary Rose up, we've got the Invincible coming up, etc. Et I wonder just how much. Leave them there. Leave them where they are. That's what you think. Mark them. Uh, but in the meantime, nip down to Chatham, the old dockyard at Chatham, uh, and see the... You've got n- some mates there, haven't you, as well? I used to drive the ship. Go down <laughs> and see ju- one of the best frigates that ever went to sea. OK, well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our contributors and, of course, to you, Christopher Lee. Do keep your <laughs> comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFS Sit Rep. Don't forget the podcast. Search for us on iTunes. Join us again next time, same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot. Goodbye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.